It's verbatim. It's not verbatim. It's verbatim. Look, I'm Northern. We say verbatim. I'm a Northerner. Uh, All right. That's how we speak. So if you don't like it, stay in London. That's not how the English language works. I'm Northern. Deal with it. Verbatim. Welcome to the Not Bane Podcast, your weekly rundown of UK politics from a black millennial view. Every Sunday, join Corey and me, Bay, your resident centre lefty, as we look at Parliament, the headlines and stories from across the pond and the diaspora. So we are back this week after our one week break. Big news of the week this week was Dominic Cummings, the former chief advisor to the Prime Minister, answering questions to two different parliamentary committees about the government's response to coronavirus. So we're going to be talking about that a bit later. However, as always, we're going to start off with Prime Minister's questions and this week, a review of this week's tete-a-tete between the leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister. So the questions all, as you would expect, surrounded uh, Dominic Cummings's testimony. So Cummings was giving testimony on Wednesday, which obviously was the same day as Prime Minister's questions. He started his questions in front of those committees at nine o'clock, which gave Keir Starmer three hours worth of juicy material to smash at Boris at Prime Minister's questions. And that he did. I mean, as I said, I'm going to give Keir, uh, I'm going to give the victory to Keir this week. However, anybody could win this week's Prime Minister's questions. I could win it. It was an open goal. Yeah, it was was an open goal. Yeah, a lot of... um, I was going to say revelations, but we'll go into that later of whether we can actually believe him or not. A lot of accusations from uh, from from Dominic Cummings, which was just easy fodder for Keir Starmer to throw at the Prime Minister. Um, I think top of the list was the accusation that the Prime Minister say, was reported to have said that quite flippantly during the height of the coronavirus uh, crisis last year, that it was only killing over 80-year-olds. Um, mm-hmm. So that was something which was thrown back at the Prime Minister by uh, Keir Starmer. And tellingly, he did not categorically deny saying it. He just ignored the question. Take that for what you will. Um, But as I said, easy, really, given the explosive nature of the hearing, which we will link to in the show notes. uh, And we'll link to some summaries of it, because you may not have seven hours to watch it. And so a lot of it was uh, one of the most important, Interesting question for me, though, was when uh, Starmer used what had happened in the morning and all the other accusations against the prime minister to call again for this uh, public inquiry, which is supposed to be happening next year. But he's calling for it to happen to start straight away. It's public inquiry into the coronavirus, into COVID-19 and the government's response to it. To which Boris Johnson, again, patronizingly responded, as he's done about five times. I've seen different videos this week talking about what the British people really want to talk about or what the British people really want to know. I love how this guy always assumes what the British people want to know without actually asking us, but that's another story. Um, So apparently we're not interested in um, finding out and knowing what happened with coronavirus because the government are too busy at the moment, apparently. And he says that we are we are actually interested in everything else that they're doing, like the railways, like the levelling up agenda, like the home building agenda. Like about, He reeled out about six different government priorities which were in the Queen's speech. Um, so he kind of, he, he spoke out of both sides of his mouth, as he's wont to do, and just contradicted himself. Because one minute it's, we don't have time to do a COVID-19 inquiry this year because we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis and so we don't have time. But on the other side, he's saying 
we're also not doing the public inquiry because we've got this long list of other things to do. So what is it? Do we not have time or do you just not want to do it? Obviously, we know that he just doesn't want to do it. They want to kick that can down the road. Hopefully that inquiry will be done in 2022 to 2023. By then, they're hoping people will be less angry for when, you know, certain things might come out where the where it's proven that the government failed catastrophically. But I guess they're banking on the fact that people, people may have gotten over the crisis by then. Um, also, if they do call an early election in 2023, then the results of the public inquiry might come just after the election. So then they don't suffer at the ballot box. It's all politics, um, sadly. But I thought uh, Keir was good to, I thought it was good of him to, to raise that. And I hope Labour actually pull their finger out and really do push as hard as they can for that public inquiry to be done as soon as possible. Um, just one last thing on that, <clears throat> you know, quite a lot of commentators have have commented over the past few weeks that there's no good reason to to um to delay this inquiry because we're still in the middle of this pandemic technically and so you know if the public inquiry is done now not we don't have to sit we don't have to wait to learn the lessons lessons can be learned and things can be changed in real time so there's that However, I have no hope in Labour to stick to any kind of message, so that public inquiry no. probably will be kicked into the long grass in 2022. Yes. I agree. And, oh, yes, I didn't, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't abide waiting for Ian Blackford this week, so I don't have a scorecard for the SNP versus the Tories this week, because I didn't watch mm -hmm. that part, because I couldn't be bothered watching him ask his two questions, which would just waste my time. Lovely, well-rounded uh, reporting there from you. Excellent. I'm very well-rounded. Very well-rounded. So well-rounded. Mm-hmm, indeed. So, as referred to in the previous section, Dominic Cummings, former chief advisor to the Prime Minister and all-round dark lord of politics, uh, gave his <laughs> answered questions this week. It was the, uh, it was a seven-hour, a seven-hour session. All right, get on with he, it. He, uh, he sat in front of, it was actually two different select committees. It was the Health and Social Care Committee and also the Science Committee combined asking him a okay. bunch of questions. So I'm going to so. just take over because this intro is taking too long and I want to get to it. Go yes. Ahead. First of all, I don't know, would we call Cummings a Dark Lord? Because as far as I know, it's Lord Mandelson is a Dark Lord. Lord Wrong Mandelson party. is, you know. Yeah, but every party needs their Dark Lord. Do you think everyone, okay, fine. Okay. So, yes. As Corey pontificated earlier, he did indeed talk for seven hours. And I watched, I want to say, probably most of it. I did have a nap in between, I can't lie, because it was so, so, so long. And yes, it was great. And he was lambasting the government, but bleeding neck. I mean, come on, guy, wrap it up. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was very fun to watch. Hancock, obviously Matt Hancock, the health secretary, secretary did not come out of this looking good at all. I believe um, Dominic said that there were at least 15 to 20 times where he should have been fired and accused him of being a serial liar. He um, described Boris as basically being somebody who is unable to make decisions, who has poor decision-making skills, who is easily swayed by the last person he talks to, easily swayed by his fiance. And generally all round, just, you know, not a good job. He expressed surprise at both him and Boris being allowed to run the country, which 
frankly, I thought was a bit cheeky because he had a hand in making Boris Johnson the prime minister of this country. So to then express mass shock at the fact that he was that him and Boris have been allowed to lead is disingenuous at best. And I think, Corey, you did actually bring up, we were having a chat about this earlier in the week, this idea that suddenly everybody's sort of taking everything that Dominic says at face value, where he is known to spin, he is known to, you know, give the easiest possible answer. And generally it's like, why are we all of a sudden, you know, lauding everything that he says? I do think the Brexit um, film on BBC does have a hand to play in this as sort of depicting him as this mag magical political savant. And it's like, no, he got the cultural zeitgeist at the time. It's the same, they did the same thing with Linton Crosby. It's like, yes, who was a, a previous um, a person who ran the campaigns for um, the Conservative Party and they did win quite a lot. But it's, yes, if you can, un you can have your finger on the pulse of politics. However, like Dominic Cummings is not a, a mad scientist genius. He's gotten some things right. He's gotten some things wrong. I do think what was so refreshing, and I think which is what, you know, got the media abuzz as well, was the fact that he was quite openly willing to say, one, yes, we did have a herd immunity strategy, which everybody knew, but the, the government has been lying to us about it. And two, saying, yes, we messed up and I apologize, which unfortunately in politics is very rare. So when somebody within politics who had a seat at the table at the highest office in the land and is able to say, yes, we made a mistake, that is good to see because we all know that they made mistakes. We can see how they made the mistakes. The, those mistakes have affected our lives. The mistakes that they made in the December lockdown, the, the mistakes that they made in the um, in calling out the first lockdown, the mistakes that they made with Eat Out to Help Out, which strangely enough was left off um, coming list of wrongdoings. So that was what was most refreshing about his testimony. Obviously all the other stuff too. Corey. I mean, it's easy to apologize when you've got nothing to lose. Absolutely. Not, uh, so, so I don't, I, I wouldn't put much, I wouldn't set much by his apology. Like he's not in, no, he's, I'm not he has saying no... much by it. I'm saying it's refreshing, but you know, do the, the, the Tories have an 80 seat majority. I don't think they have much to lose by saying, look, we could have done some things better. It would be refreshing for somebody to apologize who still has something to lose. That's all I'm saying. I, I don't, I like beyond it being beyond a general response to an apology. I have nothing more in response to it because again, as I said, he has nothing to lose. He's not, he doesn't have a position anymore. He's not trying to get another position. So him apologizing or not doesn't do anything. It's nothing bad for him, is it? Um, I think it's interesting what you said about the, uh, what he was referring to Johnson as, as being somebody who's, uh, he described him as dithering. Mm -hmm. And that matches, uh, I was watching an interview with, uh, what's his face, Rory Stewart. He also ran to be leader of the Conservative Party when Boris Johnson won. And he made the same comment in an interview this week on, I think it was Channel 4. And he was saying, you know, the presenter basically said to him, Cummings thinks that Johnson's unfit to be prime minister. Do you think that as well? And he basically said, well, yeah, of course I do. I ran against him because I don't think he's fit. And interestingly, he used that same word, dithering. Um, it's just like we've got, we've had the people with the worst character traits to be in charge of a crisis. You know, you mentioned also then about Cummings saying that Johnson is swayed by the last person who he spoke to. And that's exactly the same as what happened with Trump in America. He was mm -hmm. infamous for being swayed by the last person he spoke to, the last briefing he had. So much so that 
when people wanted him to do something they would they would make sure that they were the last person to speak to him on a subject mm. because he knew he Absolutely. was they knew he was so easily swayed he would just do what also, they said he, and he's also been described as somebody you know who doesn't like to say no who doesn't like to deliver the bad news but has also taken on the role of prime minister sometimes you have to deliver the bad news and the bad news has to be yes lockdown is going to continue yes businesses are going to have to close etc etc and it's the, and you know sometimes you all that the bad news has to extend to the people in your personal life and say no your mate can't get this job yeah can't no you deliver. can't circumvent hiring practices you know yeah so not being able to things. deliver bad news again i don't want to keep harping on the trump line but it's the same characteristics he also famously he has this sort of famous you know from the apprentice exterior of you know being able to say you're fired but apparently in real business life he doesn't like confrontation either like Johnson, apparently. Also, details. Most people don't we know like that confrontation. We know that neither of them, um, neither of them like detail. Well, f- when you're facing a once-in-a-century pandemic and you've got leaders who are dithering, easily swayed by the last person in the room, don't like detail and don't like making hard decisions, it's literally the worst, char- worst cocktail of character traits for this, this situation. Um, but. As I was saying, and as you referred to, you referred to something I tweeted earlier in the week. And yeah, I said like six months ago, you know, to everybody, Cummings was this big, bad, big, bad, shady, dark lord of the government um, who, you know, we didn't believe anything he said. We didn't believe his silly excuse about when he went to uh, what drive to a castle last year just to test his eyes when he was accused of breaking lockdown rules. We didn't believe any of that. Obviously, it was patently obvious that it wasn't true. But in general, we didn't believe it, not just because it was obviously untrue, but because of who it was, who it was speaking. <clears throat> but now it's a case of we believe everything he says and everything he says is happened verbatim. It's like, well, wait a minute, hold on. How can you go six months from one position to the other? And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that people have, often, I'm not saying these opinions are wrong, but a lot of the time we've got people have these opinions of the government, especially this specific government, how they performed with COVID. As I said, a lot of it true because borne out by other evidence, but because we've already got this fixed position on what this government is, we've got somebody then telling us what we want to hear or what we'd like to hear or what we think matches up with reality, even though we've really just got his word to go on it. But because we've got these... um, these preconceived ideas of, of the people we're speaking about would just believe it. And I'm seeing that a lot and I'm like, well, you need to just relax. Because again, if this guy is as shady as we all thought he was six months ago, is it really beyond the bounds of reason to think that he would say things that he he knows will be believed, but what might not necessarily be true? Do you know what I mean? I think and I'm not the, trying to sound but like- I do think the way that we have to look at it is that he is um, saying things that are somewhat true that benefit him rather than he is lying to benefit himself because one, he's also giving evidence in front of a select committee. committee. So I think we do have to look at it through that lens. The same way that that Michael Gove wasn't mentioned. Not that he's just told the truth. I think he's he's deleting bits of information that he doesn't want to to talk about. So he's saying the things that are politically expedient to him. But we all know that Matt Matt Hancock has lied. So nothing that he, the thing what is most important is that nothing that Dominic said is one, new information and and, um, things that we haven't, that we don't know specifically and haven't been brought up. And I think that's why people Mm. believe him because we know Matt Hancock have lied. Okay. No, not all what, of it. What are the, what so are the he things did say, that you think that no, he said that no, he was, did, we didn't know? Because that's, and that's the thing with, obviously, who's gonna, who wants to watch seven hours of some random and talking in Parliament? Like, nobody has that kind of time. But oh, well, the thing is, so. okay, well, you did. But most people don't have that kind of time or even the will to do that. So here's the thing. We get some of the, 
key snippet points that make the headlines, which are like, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true. But there's a lot of other things that I said, which are like, wait a minute, how do we know that's true? But those things don't get reported as widely. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, take for example, right, the comment about that I mentioned when I was talking about Prime Minister's questions with Boris Johnson, apparently saying uh, when they wanted to, I think it was, they wanted to, they were pushing in for some kind of lockdown or closing the schools or something like that. And he basically said, oh, apparently reported to have said, oh, well, it's only killing 80 year olds anyway. Now, okay, so we know that Johnson is a differing idiot. We know that Johnson is careless. We know that Johnson is a natural libertarian who doesn't like locking things down. We know these things. And so if Cummings says something around that, then yes, we can believe that. And we can be like, okay, well, that matches up. That comports with reality. Fair enough. I mm -hmm. agree. Cool. But then when he says something like, oh, the prime minister also said this quote, quote, it only, it only is only killing over 80 year olds. Now, if he said that, that man needs to go today. That's, 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 the Queen should sack him straight away if that was on tape. But the thing is, if he didn't say that, then it's a bit, it's, all I'm saying is there are these other additional things which we have no, we, we cannot say happened or didn't happen. But people are just saying, oh yeah, of course it happened. And I'm just saying, look, we, I'm just saying people, I'm just saying, we need to be smart and smart listeners, smart analyzers of what we're hearing and be able to separate what sounds true from what might be true from what we don't have a clue whether it's true or not. And I just feel from a lot of the coverage I'm seeing this week from is that everybody's just putting everything into the, yeah, probably true box when I think we should just be a bit more careful because we I can be easily well. hoodwinked and gaslit Absolutely. by people like Cummings who know what we want to hear. And so we'll say things expecting us to believe it. We just have to be I, careful the coverage being I have most the coverage I have the coverage I have mostly read read has definitely said you know one takes with a pinch of salt to as uh, and has characterized him as somebody who says things that are politically expedient and also do remember Matt Hancock is going to be giving testimony in two weeks to the select committee so it's not a case of him giving um information and it's never being retorted and nobody else is going to be able to respond to it mm -hmm. it's going to be responded to Boris Johnson can respond to um, um, the claims that have been made also currently he's had just had a secret wedding so I don't know if he'll be doing that anytime soon um uh, I, uh, yeah cool. I even get that but cool um you know so <laughs> um, yes yeah, a secret wedding so really I you know like if they want to refute it they can they can yeah. go in front of the select committee they can move the inquiry forward and I'm, not, and, no. and I'm not again I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to say that to I'm not trying to sound because like, there were a lot of Tory MPs this week who both in parliament and outside of parliament were giving speeches and little snippets and and, and comments about how they were basically saying oh we shouldn't trust anything this man says now a lot of them have access to grind because especially the ones who are remainers obviously don't like him because he was a Brexiteer a lot of the Tory party just don't like him anyway he's not even really a conservative so a lot of them didn't like him because Boris Johnson brought this guy in who wasn't really part of the party so there's a lot of there are a lot of a lot of Tory insiders hate Cummings always have and so they were coming out this week, basically just trashing everything he says and sort of doing, saying what I'm saying, but taking it to the extreme. See, what I'm saying is we shouldn't believe everything. They were saying we shouldn't believe anything, which is just obviously ridiculous. Um, I did see a, a YouGov poll. No, it was Opinium, actually, which was, so this was obviously every week they do these voting intentions. So you see if there was a general oh, those election. Those are stressful. I can't even read them anymore. <laughs> All that, every single week, the Conservative 
vote share goes well, up. It never well, goes down. Well, let, well, this might put a smile on your face. So they do these polls every week. Basically, it's a, it's a case of thing where if there was a general election today, who would you vote for? So this one was done 27th to the 28th of May, which was Thursday and Friday. And obviously Cummings gave his uh, testimony on Wednesday. So this is after that happened. And the Conservatives still lead at 42%. But they're down two. <laughs> they're down two points though, and Labour were up five points. Um, I mean, I don't support any political party. You know, I'm politically independent. So, <laughs> so am I. So am I. Two independents. Oh, that's right, Tory. So you know, I think um, really it doesn't. At this point, I don't think any anyone is offering anything particularly inspiring in terms of political choice, and I'm I'm more interested to see where this goes in terms of potentially pushing an inquiry forward and I do think Cummings also was gave us really good information just in terms of like how they were making decisions because I do understand making decisions on the fly and I do understand sometimes potentially making some some missteps with regards to procurement etc etc but the amount of money that went missing during the procurement we need to there needs to be an investigation he prevent, provided evidence of the the whiteboard when they were working out what they were going to be doing with lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. So some good things have come out of this. And I think some more interesting and explosive stuff can come out when Matt Hancock goes in front of them in two weeks, you know, because he has told us that he's been busy saving lives. So I'd love to hear about how he's been doing that. I mean, the the, the most unnerving part of all of the of all of it that I watched was when Cummings said, he said, quote, the whole of government fundamentally fell apart sorry the whole core of government fundamentally fell apart and I was like yeah "Eh?" I mean Uh again it's not a total surprise because we know they're a total show but for him to just those words I was like just crumbled crumbled under the pressure of government fell apart like the government was unable to govern ridiculous and also that Boris Johnson went missing because he was writing his Shakespeare novel again we don't know that but I would like to know if that was true or not. Because mm. again, there was at the time there were a lot of uh, rumors popping up that you know the prime minister had gone missing and that he had a deadline to meet with regards to some work. So, and this is what I'm I, saying. I want I want the tech. Now, what was great was the uh, Greg Clark, who's the chair of that committee, asked him a few times, "Do you have these memos that you sent?" He asked he asked him, "Do you did you how did you communicate to the prime minister? Was it via memos and text?" And he said, "Yes." And text. he said, "Do you still have those?" And he says, "Yes, I have most yes. of them." And then he asked him, mm-hmm. "Will you supply them?" And he said, "Yes." I want to see the WhatsApp messages. I want to see the text. I want to see I want the to memos. See the WhatsApp messages. Because we need. You're going to read need... them though, or you're going to say that people are not interested? Because then again, it's like somebody's giving this evidence. We're we're asking for someone to provide the physical evidence. The physical evidence is provided, and everyone's like, "No one cares about this. This isn't isn't important." Do you know? So, um, just just lastly on that. Let's be real. What you said about what people were people cared about, and I, I said it before when we were covering Prime Minister's questions. I said that Johnson kept saying things like, "Oh, the British public really want to hear about X, Y, and Z," and I'm there saying, "No, I want to hear about that." But you know what? When I was listening to that and in my head debating or rebutting back to him, I was thinking in my head, "You know what? You're right. A lot of people don't actually care, and that's kind of scary. A lot of people do not care. A lot of people just care about vaccines being out, which is great. A lot of people care yeah. about." potential you know leveling up in their area again which are good things but exactly. things, we all care about people, local investment and going out that, a lot of people it. actually don't care to be honest to yeah, me that's kind of scary because it means then that government can get that it means government can get away with shady stuff if people they absolutely generally can. just don't care they, they always have 
So why don't you tell us about your favorite home secretary and what so she's been up to this week? So your home secretary, your auntie Pretty, she gave a speech um, to laying out her new immigration rules, her new plans for immigration and asylum in the country. And so she talks about this new electronic travel authorization, which she'll be introducing for people who are coming from countries which we don't require visas. Um, it was very similar actually to the Esther system that they have in America. As I think people, I think the natural reflex is to, you know, refute whatever Pretty's saying because she's pretty, you know, and she just gives off the vibe of, I'm, um, you know, don't want you lot here. And I, I, like, it seems like, you know, her inclination with regards to immigration ruling is to be naturally sinister. So I think people seems. then assume. Seems. Hmm? Now who's I the one hedging? I thought I'm I the one who always hedges. I am indeed trying to hedge and, you know, give grace. Are you trying to not apply for a I job think, at the Home Office? No, not because I think that she deserves it. Just because, you know, sometimes, like, let's like let's be honest, not everything is... You always say to me, not everything is sinister. Like, they, like you know, so let's give her some grace. This, From what I can tell, from what I've read about this, this system specifically, I'm very sure there will be a way that will be used as a cudgel to beat up, you know, black and brown people trying to come on holiday here for two weeks. But on the face of it, it very much seems similar to the Esther system that they have in America, which I have applied for. You give your passport number, you say what flight you're doing, and you say what country you're from. They, you know, run a check and then say, yes, you can come. And that's it. And it, and it lasts for 10 years. Two years, um, and you've got to shell out nine quid. Oh, well, it used to last for 10 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you've got to shell out, is it nine quid? Yes, yeah, nine pounds. It's even, wow, it's cheap. So, see, there you go. Oh, maybe it's not cheap, actually, you know, it's a price that could potentially be prohibitive. So uh, Pretty has not yet said how much hers will cost, but it will automatically determine, determine authorization for people to visit the country from countries which are visa exempt. And it's an attempt to try and digitize um, border operations overall, because they want to digitize the border by 2025, which to me seems extremely optimistic because I've used the electric gates at Heathrow Airport and then men don't work half the time. So fully digitizing the border seems optimistic, but sure, why not? Um, she hasn't said how much it's going to cost, but it's very similar to the one that's also going to be coming into place in the EU, which is has another sort of name, which is the European Travel Authorization Information System. Like they're all very similar. Um, and that will also apply to UK residents. And I think that's going to cost seven euro, seven euro or seven pound, something along those lines. I mean, she also then did say in her speech, you know, people resisting immigration raids and trying to keep dangerous criminals here because obviously there was the um, protest action that happened in Glasgow where they stopped the police or immigration from taking two people from their homes to be removed. So she did somewhat allude to that. But as far as anybody knows, these are not you know dangerous criminals, but she said that the, the public should not be stopping the government from removing dangerous criminals, murderers and rapists from the country. But as far as I know, most people are not trying to do that. But I think obviously it works for pretty as an attack line to say that every single person that they're trying to deport is a dangerous criminal who we want off our streets. Well, we all know that it's not as simple as that. But on the face of it, this ETA system seems pretty much in line with what most other countries have. Indeed. Um, 
I wonder whether this didn't get much coverage uh, because this was on Monday, I believe. Monday of this week was when she yeah, gave this speech. Yeah. And it didn't really get that much press. Uh, you can't really say it was, oh, it was because of Cummings taking over the news for the week because that was on Wednesday. And I wonder mm. if it didn't get that much press simply because it wasn't it that crazy. Yeah. No, and it's because. Not crazy. Uh, no, I'm just, but I'm just wondering again, this goes back to media, it goes back to the kinds of stories that get pushed to us. You know, we again we, we know how media works. We get stories it's that true, are gonna make actually. us feel You're a certain right, way. Finding this information about this, I did have to do a little bit of searching. Like when I initially was oh, you had to and do I some knew work, that did this, you? I knew this speech had happened and I and I knew peripherally what was going on, but to try and get down to get the specific information outside of watching her speech, I did find it a little bit like I had to like it wasn't the first hit that came up when you searched Pretty Patel immigration warnings. It was about, you know her going on raids and taking photos outside of, you know, trap houses, or I don't know what the smuggling version of a trap house is, you know, that's what the first things that come up because that, that is what she's putting up out there. So because it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel scary. Like you said, it didn't, it didn't really pop up on people's radar. It's normal. Mm. I think it's normal. Yeah. So for Across the Pond this week, we are going down to the continent and discussing the story this week that came out of Germany and Namibia, Germany will be paying 1.1 billion euros, that's some 950 million pounds, to Namibia. Now, Namibia used to be a German colony. Back then, it was known as German South, German Southwest Africa back in mm -hmm. the early 1900s. Um, as a result of the scramble for Africa in 1884, when European countries basically carved up Africa, one of the pieces of Africa which was carved up and given to the Germans was what is now Namibia. Um, there was a genocide, um, there were concentration camps in Namibia, and some 75,000 people were killed in the space of four years by, uh, by German soldiers and um, the German state, well the empire at the time, German empire at the time. So What's interesting about this story, well, there are a lot of interesting things about this story, but one of the interesting things about this story is that Germany have, have used the word genocide. They've admitted that they committed genocide, but they have not, um, in the words reparations or compensation, those words have not been used be, for a number of reasons. One of which would be that it would then open them up to paying a much larger sum because if they admit yes. Um, if they if they call this reparations, then it opens the door for other people in Namibia, actual in individuals to come after the German government for money. It also would open the door potentially for other former German colonies. It would then also put pressure on other European countries um, who also uh, committed similar acts of atrocity in Africa over the last couple of hundred years. So it's not been called reparations. It's not been called compensation. It's a uh, it's uh, a recognition payment as it were and uh, this is going to be paid out over the next 30 years so uh, you know <laughs> um, it's going to be going and largely being paid in existing aid programs so you know things like uh, land reform water education uh, professional training and that sort of thing um, but just to give a bit of context as I said this was um, essentially ethnic cleansing so Germany uh, German settlers were um, moving to Namibia quite a lot in that period um, and they wanted essentially to take over the land, take over the space. And Germany, you know, brutally sent in their, their soldiers 
to to massacre people. So there are two particular ethnic groups which are concerned, which are uh, most concerned with this: the Herero and the Nama tribes. The Herero lost sixty thousand people. Sorry, not lost. Sixty thousand people were murdered. Mm-hmm. That was three quarters of their entire population. Um, the Nama tribe lost another fifteen thousand people, and that was about half of their population. So half of one and three quarters of the other ethnic groups wiped out. Um, there's a there's an interesting documentary which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, which was produced about ten or fifteen years ago. Um, so obviously it won't include any of the this kind of stuff, but there's a lot in it about what Germ- what the German army did and how they how they treated the people there you know it was essentially they the ones who they didn't kill were just were um put to essential slavery and they were Mm -hmm. and again they were put in what were basically concentration camps they were concentration camps um it was there were there are there are a number of lines which you can draw straight from that to the nazis in the in the 30s and 40s and what they did um but it was the same thing and um i think it's important that finally there's some sort of recognition there's some sort of um money being paid however would caveat that by saying a lot of people are main, making note of the fact that 1.1 billion euros compared to the damage that was done is nothing um nothing. that payment is is far too small and there are also uh, a lot of this will this has to be agreed now this has been agreed by the negotiators but it's got to be agreed in the individual company countries parliaments and there's a lot of people in namibia um, especially from the two affected tribes um, who are not happy with this. They feel like they've li- been left out of the process. Um, so it still might not happen, but that's what's been committed to by both governments. So we'll, uh, we'll watch this space. And I guess we'll also watch this space to see what other European countries might do. Um, I mean, I don't have much hope for any of them doing anything. I think this was a big surprise to me. Um, just this week, also, France asked for forgiveness I believe, or they're planning to ask for forgiveness for one of their former colonies. Um, no money's being exchanged, so uh, I don't no, know what that's about. There is a ceremony. A ceremony, oh, and yes. They, I believe they're returning. Oh, wait, no, no, no. That's no, that was Germany returning that's... to Benin. That was another story a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're returning some stolen artefacts, I think, to Benin. And they're going to, I think Belgium is going to be returning the tooth of Patrice Lumumba to his uh, sons because that's the only physical remains left of him after he was killed by some supposed mercenaries um yeah patrice lumumba of course being um, a former leader of first first president of the congo yeah which was a belgian colony also ravaged in a similar way murdered and his body was then dissolved in acid so they're going to be uh, returning the tooth that was kept by one of the mercenaries to his uh, descendants and I believe there's going to be a ceremony both in Congo and in France yeah that's all well and good return the tooth return the artifacts do the ceremonies open your purse right checkbook with plenty Empty of zeros the ducats out yes all right come on personal checks open the purse give us the ducats all of this oh we're so sorry oh please forgive us get lost mate we want the money back I mean, it's it's the for way, services rendered. Truly, um, it was it's shocking. Like free labor again, just like the slave trade. Free labor. These people were put to work on. They were driven off their own land. The ones who weren't mm-hmm. killed were then brought back and forced to work for free. Forced to work. A lot of a lot of the farmland um, 
there's there's all of this pretty much most of the farmland in namibia is owned by descendants of german settlers and the the black namibians are still dispossessed of land which was taken from them 100 years ago Mm -hmm. um so you know 1.1 billion euros is all fine and good but there's a lot more that needs to be done that doesn't affect the material circumstances of your the descendants of the people that you displaced. No, it doesn't. My descendants, it can't bring back the people that we lost, you know, because of deprivation, hunger, starvation, poverty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those are that, little bits of money that you're giving to NGOs. It's not helping people, helping us. All those you know? ties to the land, that generational wealth, that needs to be mm-hmm. recompensed. But Absolutely. as I said, they were very careful not to use the words compensation or reparations. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NotBamePod. That's N-O-T-B-A-M-E pod. If you've got a comment or a suggestion for a future show, email us, notbamepod at gmail.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us five stars.